Join us now on The Collector Show with Harold Nickel. Well, welcome to this version of The Collector Show. I am Harold Nickel. Thank you for being with us. Well, what would you say about a collectible item that can link cleanliness, health, the discovery of germs, a Chicago inventor dating all the way back to 1869, an English inventor whose name was H. Cecil Booth, the crowning of royalty, and the health of sailors during the First World War. Well, our guest during the interview segment is a man named Robert Bob Kaltzman, and Robert is going to help connect all of these dots for us for the interview segment this week. You won't want to miss that. But first, of course, as always... It's the news from the world of collecting, and it was bound to happen. An art museum reportedly sold fakes to an art collector. This is from Chicago. One Chicago gallery is accused of selling millions of dollars worth of fake paintings to people all over the country. When a Chicago-area artist and art lover, Rich Edgley, bought a signed Salvador Dali print for $700 a number of years ago, it seemed like a bargain. And, um, hey, Rich, it should have also been a clue. The the art teacher is thinking it might just be a fake. You would never expect any kind of wrongdoing going on, said the St. Charles man of Huron Street Gallery, where he bought the print entitled The Horse Rider. Edgley learned last week that the owner of the Cass Meridian Gallery was named in a federal indictment for allegedly selling counterfeits of that Dolly work and other famous pieces. The indictment alleges the Chicago galleries and others around the country earned more than $480,000 as part of an international scheme to sell unauthorized prints. The gallery's owner, Alan Crass, could not be reached for comment. So um, we've talked about this over and over and over again on the program about uh, if you're going to spend a lot of money on a collectible or... If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. More from the world of art. A portrait of Andy Warhol may be worth as much as $30 million, and this is from the, uh, the Detroit News in Bloomfield Hills. Nearly 50 years ago, Andy Warhol wanted to paint Detroit art collector Florence Barron, but she insisted that he create a portrait of himself. Then an unknown, one of the most important artists of the last century, created his first self-portrait, for which Barron paid him $1,600 in five installments. After she died, the Warhol was passed on to Barron's only son and his wife, collectors who also inherited an eye, for supporting artists they had discovered. But Warhol's four-panel acrylic silkscreen is moving on to another life next month, The 1963 piece goes up for auction at Christie's in New York and could bring 20 to 30 million (sighs) dollars. She would be delighted, speaking of his mom, to know that others in the world were going to be able to share in it and be part of it, said her son Guy Barron, the ironically named Barron, who's a real estate developer from Bloomfield Hills. The couple planned to donate some of the proceeds from the May 11th sale to philanthropies. 
and they have a lot of hopes for the Warhol in the future. We hope it goes to a home that loves it as much as we do. And um, I'm sure being traded $30 million will help them with their separation anxiety from uh, the Warhol print. This is, I think, possibly the lamest collection item offered for sale ever. The Royal Canadian Mint has unveiled two collector coins to commemorate the wedding of Britain's Prince William and Kate Middleton. Oh my God, who cares? The beautifully designed collector coin created by the Mint will give Canadians, royal watchers, and collectors everywhere exceptional keepsakes by which to remember this historic event. Ian Bennett, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Royal Canadian Mint, was quoted as saying by Genwa, that's the Chinese news agency, the 25-cent nickel-plated steel coin depicts a photograph of the happy couple, and the 20 Canadian dollar pure silver coin features a sapphire-colored crystal enhancement symbolizing the sapphire engagement ring, which William presented to Kate last October. <clears throat> now, my advice, save your money. <laughs> Just save your money. Don't go to Canada to buy this. When it comes in the mail offering it to you, just throw it away. A terrible idea for a collectible. Sorry. But here's a cool one to end this new segment before we get to uh, Bob Kautzman, who's going to teach us about germs and dirt and collectibles. And this is from my hometown, Houston's Museum of Natural Science, which is an institution best known for minerals, mummies, and the mysteries of chemistry, is poised to launch a six-month celebration of Texas history marking the state's 175th anniversary from independence from Mexico. Drawing from public and private collections, Texas, making history since 1519, will offer visitors a rare glimpse of the region from the beginning of Spanish exploration through the 20th century. On view will be artifacts from the 1685 Labelle shipwreck, Goliad's fabled Come and Take It cannon, a miniature portrait of Sam Houston on ivory, and a veritable bank vault of currency dating from Spanish governance to the last days of the Republic of Texas. Now, one of the things about LaBelle uh, was a shipwreck that was just recently, and I say recently, in the last 10 years discovered off of Matagorda, and it was recovered by a team of uh, archaeologists from Texas A&M University. And I happen to know, because of some other uh, reading and work that I've done, that the LaBelle is so delicate, I guess is the right word, that it's stored in a, in a tank full of seawater so it doesn't just fall to pieces. They've gone at uh, A&M to a lot of, a lot of uh, trouble to preserve the LaBelle. It was, uh, and just literally a few miles off the, off the Texas Gulf Coast. And when they talk about that cannon, come and take it, uh, the Mexican army had wanted to uh, capture one of those cannons, and somebody cleverly wrote on it, come and take it. So that's the news segment for this week. Stay tuned for the interview segment, and then at the end of that, it'll be the weird item from the world of collecting news. Thanks for joining us as always. I'm Harold Nickel here on Web Talk Radio.
Well, welcome back to The Collector's Show. In our interview segment this week, we're going to be talking with Robert Bob Kautzman. He is known as the Vac Hunter, and he owns the country's largest collection of early vacuum cleaners. The vacuum cleaners in his collection date back from 1858 through the 1950s, and these vacuums include vacuums that were known as beaters, sweepers, pumpers, plungers, bellows, and all different types of vacuum cleaners. And Bob, welcome back to The Collector's Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, um, I know that uh, there's a lot of history linked with the vacuum cleaner. And I was reading on your website that the earliest vacuums really didn't have anything to do with neatness so much as they did with health issues. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about that. Okay. Um, first, I believe that health and cleanliness go hand in hand. So although most people don't talk about that, they were trying to get their houses clean, but right. in doing so, it made their house also healthy. Um, the first vacuum cleaner that was invented uh, was made by a man in Chicago in the year 1869. And his machine was designed to pick up dust and, you know, light litter off the floor. Right. Which was more of a, a you know, a neatness concern. Uh, and where the health issue really came into play was when a man in England invented a vacuum cleaner. His name was H. Cecil Booth. And uh, he introduced his machine in 1901. And at the time... They were experimenting with cleaning carpeting with compressed air. So, in essence, they would be blowing the dust around, and he, he never bought that idea. He thought that was silly. So he, he experimented at home with uh, suction and found out that suction cleaned the dirt and collected it much better than, than a compressor cleaning. Right. I guess a compressed, a compressed air cleaner would be something like um, it would really just spread dirt around more than it would clean any of it, right? That is absolutely correct. And his machine was very successful, and it gained popularity very quickly. And he was invited to clean the coronation carpet in Westminster Abbey for the crowning of King Edward VII and Queen Alexandra. Wow. And it made a very big hit with, with the royal family. In fact, they kept inviting him to come back to entertain other heads of state with demonstrations of his vacuum cleaner. And where the health issue finally was established was during the First World War. Uh, there was a professor, Stanley Kent, who was researching the connection between dust and germs at the time. Uh-huh. And he found that millions of living organisms were present in one gram of dust, many of them being potentially lethal. And during the First World War, there were a number of uh, Royal Navy personnel housed at the Crystal Palace, and they were all catching spotted fever. Okay. So the, the powers that uh, there were at the time asked Mr. Booth if he would come and clean out the Crystal Palace where all these people were staying. 
And Booth came with a fleet of his machines, which were gasoline-powered, by the way, and he removed 23 tons of dust from the palace, and the men's health improved almost immediately. I guess until just now, I had never really thought about the entertainment value of, of um, vacuuming, it's, um, but I guess it was a novelty at Absolutely. the time. To have Absolutely. this big uh, machine that could come in and remove the the dust and the dirt, and then the experimentation, the scientific part with the link to, as you said, cleanliness and and health, or I guess just basic sanitation related to uh, all of the kinds of germs and viruses that can live. That's correct. In, in dust. Um, I have a number of magazine ads that are trying to sell vacuum cleaners in the turn of the century. And um, they show pictures of little infants playing on the, the carpet or the flooring. And then in the corner they have a blow-up of germs and say, mm -hmm. do you want your children playing near this? And so it was, it was a big selling point for, uh, for the vacuum cleaner industry. And i got to say, as somebody who has had allergies and asthma my whole life, I really dislike carpeting. It's just, it's just a magnet for dirt and. Oh, um, absolutely! They, they harbor all kinds of uh, potentially harmful things. Which is why here at my house we have we have wooden floors, thank goodness. But back to the uh, history of of the vacuum cleaner, mm -hmm. that um, I, and I'm going to bet that this recovery of these people after the dirt and dust was removed probably received a good bit of notice. In, uh, in the press in those days? Absolutely. It, in fact, it very quickly spread to, to both sides of the ocean. So the advent of the vacuum cleaner in terms of its relationship to mechanical engineering and health issues are both linked, and it was really about that time, the turn of the 20th century, that we had, as you mentioned, gasoline-powered engines and refrigeration and things like that. But what I think I read was that the development of the vacuum cleaner here in, in this country was somewhat different. Tell us about that. Yes. <clears throat> like I said, uh, vacuum cleaners had been in this country since 1869, and they were all hand-operated mechanical devices, and they, they weren't very uh, successful um, because you couldn't generate enough power to make them pick much up. But there was a man in Ohio... Um, and, and his name was Murray Spangler. He actually read about Cecil Booth's machine in England. Now, this was before the First World War. This was like 1907 right. um, that Murray Spangler found about, about the Booth's machine. And he decided to try and invent a vacuum cleaner that was powered by an electric motor rather than a big engine. Mm -hmm. Because the machine that had the engine, Booth's machine was a five-horsepower engine mounted on a cart pulled by a team of horses. And then he would have to drag a 200-foot hose from the curb into wherever he wanted to clean. So it was like the uh, there's carpet cleaning companies that operate similar contraptions today yeah they'll, they'll come to your house and clean so that's basically what this was it was a commercial uh, adventure but 
at the time, Murray Spangler was a janitor in uh, an Ohio department store, and he was also allergic to dust. And so he went home and he devised a machine made out of a, a wooden box and a motor from an electric fan and a pillowcase from uh, one of the beds at home and a, um, a broom handle. And here he devised in 1907 uh, the first really workable upright electric vacuum cleaner. And they found that that machine was very, very successful. So he was able to actually work uh, and, and be able to come home without coughing and wheezing because of his allergies, too. Right, right. So the prevention of, of uh, disease and health issues is really what led to this. But I wanted to know, um, and I had even heard this, people refer to vacuuming as hoovering. And I know that hoover gets credit for the invention of the of the vacuum cleaner help us help us with what the real story about the invention and how Hoover came to be associated with the vacuum okay that's a very good question and, and I and I can help you out um, it all goes back to Murray Spangler's vacuum cleaner um, Hoover at the time in 1907 was in the leather goods business and he made saddles and tack for horses and one of his close friends was Henry Ford. And in fact, Hoover had the contract to make some of the straps and bonnets for some of the old Model T cars. And when he would get together and socialize with Ford, Ford would uh, kid him about the fact that when his invention, the car, took off, um, Hoover would be out of work because, you know, horses would all be retired. Right. So Murray Spangler happened to build his vacuum cleaners by hand, and then go sell them door to door. And he wasn't doing very well. He wasn't a good marketing person. So out of desperation, I guess, he asked his cousin, who was Hoover's wife, if she might be interested in purchasing one of these machines. And she did. Hmm. And when Hoover came home and saw the machine, he was just totally enthralled by it. And uh, one year later, he bought the patents from Murray Spangler. Okay. And that's how he became, um, like, the head guy in the vacuum cleaner industry. Yeah, it's um, and probably most people don't even realize that Hoover was somebody's name. It wasn't the name of the machine. It was yeah, the guy that right. bought the patent. If you're just joining us, it's The Collector Show on Web Talk Radio, and we're talking with uh, Bob Kautzman, who is the Vac Hunter. He has one of the most famous and large collections of vacuum cleaners anywhere. He's been featured on A&E Network and the HT HGTV program, Ultimate Collectors, and we're chatting about collecting vacuum cleaners. So now we understand better the history of the vacuum cleaner and what really led to its acceptance as a as a health tool for households. Let's talk about you and what led you to get interested in, in the vacuum cleaner. Okay. Um, my interest in vacuum cleaners was a result of my parents who had their own business in Pittsburgh. They were in the carpet cleaning business and mm -hmm. then they sold new carpeting. 
And then uh, to complement that business, uh, my dad became a Hoover dealer. So he started selling vacuum cleaners. And to be a dealer, you had to sell all of the Hoover products, and you also had to service and, uh, and have parts for them, which he did. And that was about the time when I was young and impressionable. And my quality time with my father was sitting in his workshop uh, watching him fix vacuum cleaners. Well, that's, that's kind of neat. I mean, a lot of kids get inspired by uh, what their parents did or, or do and uh, the kind of work that they did. So it seems like a natural connection to me. Absolutely. And then we spent countless hours, you know, just chatting and having a good time. And then he saw I was actually interested. So he started teaching me how to service them and how to take them apart. And um, when people would buy a new cleaner, uh, as a dealer, you were instructed to try to get the trade in, you know, get the people's old vacuum cleaner out of the house. Right. Uh, so they, they, would, they wouldn't have something to compare, you know, the new cleaner with. So um, my father would uh, dutifully uh, take the, you know, the uh, old vacuum cleaners from the people and offer them a, a small uh, deposit for their cleaner. And then he'd give them to me, and, and that's what I trained on uh, to learn how to fix them and restore them. But then I took it one step further. Um, I was always interested in history. And so I brought that aspect to uh, to the collecting to see, you know, how old they were and, you know, what, what the companies did and who the inventors were. And so that's, that's how my interest um, got established with the vacuum cleaners. And then, of course, every time I'd restore one, it would look so nice and shiny, I couldn't bear to part with it. And so it started out becoming a collection. See, I would have thought that from a business point of view, your father would have said, you know, nope, sorry, Bob, you know, you restored it. Now we resell it for more than, than what we paid for it on the trade-in. But you just admired it so much, you decided to hang on to it. Yeah, Dad, uh, Dad placated me and let me keep them all. And, <laughs> and um, he actually liked them, too, when they were finished. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most of them were not Hoover's. So, of course, he didn't want to resell them. And no, okay, well, that makes Hoover sense. back out into the field. Yeah, that's so, a good point. Uh, no, he, uh, he, he enjoyed the fact that I was interested, and he, he let me uh, and my mother uh, keep my collection and let it grow from there. So from boyhood, how, how big is your collection of vacuum cleaners now? Uh, right now, my, my collection, not counting doubles and parts machines, is over 1,000 machines. That's that's quite a few, and if we go to your website, which is www.vachunter.com, there's photos of your barn that you use to restore vacuum cleaners and, and work on them. Do you get calls from other collectors or dealers or repair people to buy parts or consult on how to repair certain types of yes, machines? I'm contacted often. Um most of the communication is by email through my website, right? and I try to accommodate people because I do have lots of old parts and old obsolete bags that most people can't get. If it's a, a very unusual machine and the people really want it for, for one reason or another, um, I can actually make parts, machine parts. Um, I can restore machines for people. Um, in fact, I have one, one interesting story that just happened to me uh, last fall. I was contacted by a man who told me he was the uh, the producer of a of a movie company. Yeah. 
and he asked if I could provide a, a vacuum cleaner prop for a new HBO movie that was going to be uh, put together, uh, which ended up being Boardwalk Empire. No kidding. And so um, they said it had to be from 1920, and it had to look like new because the man was supposedly giving this to his wife as a Christmas present. And um, it had to run and blow up the bag because that was supposed to scare the little kid in the movie. Oh, okay. And so I gave them some options, and they chose uh, a 1920 Royal Standard Upright, which was the first of that company. And I restored it and sent it to them, and it made its appearance on uh, Boardwalk Empire. You're the second collector we've talked to lately who's had their part of their collection featured in a in a television program. We um, talked to a, a man who collects different types of labels who ended up supplying props for a movie mm -hmm. and who also had some of his collectibles featured on a television show. And now one of your vacuum cleaners turns up in um, an award-winning HBO television production. That is just too cool. Did yeah, it was quite a surprise. I was quite honored uh, by that. If you're just joining us, it's Web Talk Radio and The Collector's Show, and we're talking about collecting vacuum cleaners. Now, one of the things that we like to find out about is are there groups or uh, clubs or conventions of people that get together who are also vacuum cleaner collectors? Do you guys get together? Um, I, I know there's a few small groups around the country that people get together, but I'm you know, I'm pretty busy, and, and um, I haven't been able to get involved in anything like that. Um, most people don't collect the same kind of machines that I do, because I go into the really, really earliest versions. Okay. And most of the people who collect are um, collecting because they, um, they remember the vacuum cleaner as something that an aunt or a grandma or somebody had. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're not into the history as far back as I am. So it's a nostalgia thing. It reminds them of when they were growing up. And what we find on this program is that a lot of times people collect things that remind them of, of when they were kids and when they were growing up. So, so that makes sense. Of your over a thousand machines that you, that you own, do you have any idea how much how much they might be worth? Oh, boy, I don't know. Um, I do know that I used to be able to go to flea markets and auctions and pick a vacuum cleaner up for a quarter or, or a dollar. No kidding. And now that most of these machines are 100 years old or more, and, and also people are into early technology, um, the, the price uh, has gone up considerably. For, for machines that I might find, you know, something I might have paid five bucks for years ago, you know, I might end up paying a hundred dollars for now uh, on eBay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you have to bid against other folks. And I noticed that your collection—it it says it only runs through the 1950s. Did something change in the technology after that that caused you to not be to not be interested in those uh, types of machines? Yes, yes. two things. One thing is space. Okay. And the other thing was plastic. Okay. Right around um, 1950, uh, let's say after the Second World War, um, 
more and more plastic was being used on the machines, and I, I like the ones that are all metal. Okay. And so that's where I ended my collection. Okay. It, it makes sense because, of course, uh, plastic is lighter, cheaper, easier to deal with. Those machines from the 50s, now I'd be real good at taking one apart, but I'd be lousy at putting one back together. Can you still find uh, books and manuals for them of how to work on them, like the, uh, the uh, blow-apart diagrams, things like that? Um, no, they're very scarce, but you have to consider I've been collecting these things ever since the 1950s. Oh, okay. So, so I have schematics and repair manuals for the machiners that go back to the very first ones, because back then those things were still available. The other thing I saw on your website was um, your big barn where you, where you have your collection. Do you ever allow the public to come in and, and look around, or is it strictly an online... Um, for the moment, it's online. I, I don't normally have people uh, come come through my uh, my workshop. Um, however, I am presently building a new facility that I am housing my collection in. Oh, that is so and cool! I hope to have that finished by the fall. Well, when you get it finished, let let us know because um, I'm sure there will be people who listen to the program who are going to be interested in meeting you in person and seeing your collection. And um, do you have any other appearances or uh, television programs upcoming that we'd want to know about? Um, actually, I do. I, I, I know this is in the future, and I don't know when it's going to air, but I was just contacted by um, a man named Don Pollock. Yes. Who was a longtime uh, news reporter for the Channel 6 News in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, he is still producing his show, Don Pollock's World, which I believe are segments uh -huh. that go out to different stations, you know, news news programs. And uh, they're actually going to come and film me uh, next Wednesday. Oh, that is so cool. So, yeah, it'll be another... Pro I've been on several programs uh, since the ones you mentioned, but this is uh, this will be the latest one. So that's another thing you know, I'll have to check back with you on... Uh, when when that's going to air? Yeah, please do because I'm I'm sure we'd we'd want to see that and um, sounds like that's a syndicated feature program that we can probably see from yes, darn near so. darn near everywhere and of course through the beauty of the internet we can probably go find you without too much trouble. The Vac Hunter Bob Kautzman at www.vachunter.com. Thank you so much for uh, being with us on the Collector Show this week. And well, thank you. promise to come back and uh, tell us about your new facility. I shall. Very good. Stay tuned. More coming up on The Collector Show right after this. Well, of course, the bump just now is from Jane's Addiction, Caught Stealing. It'll make sense here in a minute as I get to the weird 
item of the week from the world of collecting. You know, we just finished talking about collecting vacuum cleaners. And in the past on this show, we've talked about collecting coins. And we even spoke to a woman who owns several of those change machines that you see at banks or grocery stores where you can take all your loose change and convert it into paper money. Well, this story from the weird world of collecting is a little bit about both of those, collecting coins and vacuum, because a man was accused of using a vacuum cleaner to steal coins. This is from Lincoln, Nebraska. Police say they believe they have nabbed the vacuum bandit. The Lincoln Star reports police on Tuesday ticketed a man they say used a vacuum cleaner to suck quarters out of several apartment laundry machines. The man was caught stealing on surveillance camera on March the 4th. Photos show a man entering the laundry room with a backpack which contained a vacuum. The man pries open the coin tray, plugs in the vacuum cleaner, and sucks out the change. Police say 40-year-old William Logan of Lincoln was cited for suspicion of misdemeanor theft. Officials say he no longer has possession of the vacuum. Well, I'm glad they cleared that up. And another important detail from the world of the news, Logan's case is not on the online court system, and there's no phone listing for him in the Lincoln area. Another huge surprise. So once again, crime doesn't pay, but it does suck if you're using a vacuum cleaner to steal coins. Next time on The Collector Show, we'll be talking about Vaseline glass. It's almost as weird as it sounds. Thanks for tuning in. Listen to our past shows here on Web Talk Radio. You can also go to iTunes and subscribe to The Collector Show, and you can hear all of them. Again, thanks for being here. See you next week on The Collector Show. Bye-bye for now.